2: I dreamed last night I got on the boat to heaven And by some chance I had brought my dice along And there I stood and I hollered, someone fade me But the passengers, they knew right from wrong For the people all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking a boat People all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking a boat And the devil will drag you under by the sharp lapel of your checkered... So, why
3: are we playing that song? It's a good song, first of all. Um, And it's not totally disconnected to the theme of our show today. But, no, we are playing that song because it was written by the great Frank Lesser, one of the finest songwriters of the the American songbook era. Despite that, Frank apparently had a somewhat caustic, maybe even toxic personality. And so did his brother, who I believe is named Arthur, or was named Arthur. And this caused people to say on repeated occasions about one or the other of these two brothers that he, that, that person, particular person, Frank or Arthur, was the evil of two lessers. That was a long way to go to get to that line. But that is something that people said about the lesser family. And we are talking about the lesser of two evils today. And I do have in front of me a big bag of popcorn called Lesser Evil Popcorn. I mean, this whole idea is that ubiquitous. Anyway, we're going to talk a lot about how it's manifesting in this election season and perhaps other election seasons of recent memory. Uh, and we'll also, we'll also talk at the end to a researcher who attempts to quantify levels of evil and depravity, the kind of thing that juries really do have to do. This Is this a more evil thing than, than that? Uh, and that, of course... Would allow you to tell whether something was a lesser evil than something else. See, it all ties together. All right, joining us now, I'm going to shut up, uh, but uh, joining us now is Laksha Jane. Laksha Jane is a partner uh, at the election analysis website, splitticket.org. I was, because I'm a 538 uh, podcast fanboy, I happened to listen uh, to a recent podcast they did called The Data Points That Will Explain the 2024 election, which is how this particular conversation uh, came to be. Uh, Laksha, welcome to. uh, Welcome to our conversation here. Hey, thank you for having me. So I think what I might do is just begin by playing you a little clip from yesterday. If you're listening live, you know what yesterday is. If you're not, uh, we are live on the 28th. Yesterday was Tuesday. It was the vote in Michigan. There have been a lot of talks uh, uh, about that. But uh, I'm actually going to play for you. This is a quote that comes up in a podcast uh, put out by The Bulwark. And it's um, uh, they, it's called Focus Group, and they actually do put together groups of voters and have them talk. And so you're going to hear uh, a two-time Trump voter talking about his hesitancy uh, this year in in this cycle and explaining kind of the, the revolutions of mind he's been through. So, yes, Meister, this is B1. Like
2: most everybody else, I did not trust Hillary Clinton. She wasn't anywhere near the campaigner that her husband was. And questionable about uh, her background. So I thought Trump would be at least, you know, not her. In 2020, I just didn't think Biden was up to the job. And I still don't. And so I voted for Trump. 24, I don't think either of them are up to the job. Biden is only getting older. There's a reason they don't put him in front of cameras and microphones. Uh, I remember he won the presidency by campaigning from a basement, trying to stay away from people. And, you know, he's not getting any better and Trump isn't not getting any better either. You know, you got plenty of accusations and whatever's true, don't know. I'd like to wait to see what happens legally. But as far as my opinion of them keeps shrinking, I'm going to vote in the election, but I'm not sure I'm going to vote for president Mm -hmm. because I can't see who I would vote for.
3: So there you have it. This man is what I guess in the uh, in the Argo of um, 2024 would be called a double hater, a term I learned while listening to that podcast. So say a little bit about what you hear in in his words, Lakshya.
4: So it's interesting because. I think there's been a lot of talk about would the Democratic Party do any better if someone else is on the ballot and listening to this guy you would think absolutely 100 percent, you know anyone else would be a slam dunk against donald trump and what i find interesting about that what i find especially interesting is that person's comments reflect a lot of what i've heard from voters a lot of what i've heard from pundits And to a degree, they also reflect a lot of what you see in several polls. Both candidates are unpopular. And the exits in the midterms that kind of showed that, like, you know, voters didn't like either Biden or Trump. And, you know, they were kind of holding their nose and figuring out who to pick. But I think that meaningfully obscures something, too, which is that among the average voter in polls, anger towards Biden has grown. And polling suggests that anger towards Trump has shrunk a lot. So this person says that, you know, he thinks Donald Trump is not getting any better and that, you know, he's worse than he was in 2020. I think that's what election results would tell you. And I think that's probably the correct read of data. But if you look just at polls, Trump has actually never been more popular than he is today.
3: Well, it's interesting because polls kind of point in two different directions about this. For example, a number of polls have tried to look at not just what the effect of a conviction would be, which that voter brings up, but which conviction would matter more. Like, would it be the documents or the January 6th? Or um, And and so there's sort of that. But it's also pretty clear. I don't know how much of this I've seen in polling, but anecdotally, it's clear that there are a number of people whose sympathies for Trump have been excited by the indictments, the 91 criminal counts, uh, the sense that he's got his back to the wall. For a certain kind of person, this might in fact provide a gust of enthusiasm. Yeah. And
4: the thing for me, the thing is, I've never really bought into that theory that it would meaningfully help Trump in the general election to have convictions um, placed against his name because. The truth is the people who are excited by this are usually the most engaged partisans. Mm -hmm. They're the people who are going to show up to vote anyways. What the impact of a conviction would be, especially on double haters is it's already hard enough to get these people to come to vote. People who don't like either Biden or Trump by and large are disaffected voters who generally have lower turnout than average. They're not likely to approve of either party. And therefore they're also not likely to come out and vote or pay attention to the political process. If you have a conviction against Donald Trump, Um, the worry for him is that the people who weren't a fan of him in the first place will probably then get pushed more towards the Biden camp on two accounts. One is that he's not, you know, charged and convicted of a crime. And the second is that it's a, it's a reminder of what happened with Trump to lead him there in the first place. I mean, we have to remember that if it's a conviction in January 6th, that was probably one of the most unpopular events in recent American history.
3: Yes, so, um, you know, I also just to, to sort of think a little bit about how unusual all this is. I mean, in 2016, we've got two candidates. Each candidate has the worst net negative approval rating in the history of his or her party among presidential nominees. Um, so you've got two candidates with, with their approval rating underwater. Um, that would seem to have also been a lesser of two evils kind of vote for them. Is it? Are we talking about double haters now? Beca- and 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 maybe spending a little bit more time on it because 2016 and 2020 were kind of practice runs. We're getting a little bit used to this particular type of choice.
4: I don't think 2020 was a type of run like this. Um, actually, in 2020, Biden's favorability was positive. Mm-hmm. Um, people by and large had a decently favorable view of Biden for much of the election cycle. Um, And that that carried over actually into the start of his presidency. Um, If you looked at the start of his presidency, um, you know, Biden's favorability was actually quite decent. Even as early as 2022, only, you know, it was only five points more unfavorable than favorable. I think 2016 is a better analogy for this Mm -hmm. than um, 2020 was. And I think To that extent, um, 2016 may give us some information, but the scales of dislike, I think, are just wildly different here. I mean, in 2024, there's a much starker difference between the two parties. Partisanship has only gotten stronger and we've got macro issues that are not really candidate specific any longer so much as party specific, like the overturning of Roe v. Wade, that makes it even more unlikely that either of these candidates is going to be popular and more importantly it makes it so that very few people think their vote is up for grabs some do but really it's a declining number continuously and i think that's part of the reason why this is going to be a unique election cycle that issue stratification that exists today and reinforces partisan behavior did not necessarily exist to the same degree In 2016, there was a lot more people willing to cross over yet Barbara Comstock win by like double digits in Virginia in her congressional race while, you know, Donald Trump ended up losing her district by double digits. Uh, That's the type of thing that was regular then and probably won't happen now.
3: I mean, one thing that we look at or we wonder about in close elections is the capacity of anybody to change. And this sometimes comes up in connection with the idea of a hard ceiling. Is there some upper limit on what a candidate can get? And and it can't grow beyond that. Um, I I felt like I was seeing a little bit of that uh, in 2016 when the Access Hollywood tape came out. I mean, I've been covering and observing politics for a really long time and everything that I had ever seen in my life suggested to me that Trump was toast. Uh, and there just, there's just no way that something like that can come out with the kind of language that he used and the descriptions of his, uh, of his actions. And, and you just don't survive that. And we now know that inside the Trump campaign, pretty much everybody but Steve Bannon thought the same thing. Maybe we're going to have to run Pence or something here. But I think part of the problem was that Hillary Clinton also had a hard ceiling. There were people who couldn't transfer. Um, They, they, you know, might have had their doubts and suspicions about both of them, but they didn't see her as morally different or morally preferable uh, to Trump. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about that kind of hard ceiling issue uh, and, and about the difficulty of anybody switching under those circumstances.
4: Yeah, for sure. So I want to actually, this is actually something I, I see a lot of people talking about a hard ceiling for a candidate. And it really depends on which polls you're looking at. So let's take an example. Um, I'll start with a slightly smaller scale and work up quickly. How does that sound? Sure. Yeah. So in Ohio in 2022, you may remember that race, um, Tim Ryan versus JD Vance. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting race for me because when you looked at the polls, Ryan was always stuck in the low 40s. Even when he had a lead, he was almost never hitting 49, 50 percent. He was always at 47. And to us, what that indicated was, yeah, there is a very real type of ceiling for Tim Ryan. He is never really getting that high of a vote. And um, it's reinforced by a lot of private polling. You'll see if a candidate gets stuck at 48, you look at the unfavorables or 45 and you look at the the people who aren't voting and or who haven't expressed a choice and you see how they break. You'll you can kind of guess that like, oh, OK, well, the people who haven't made up their minds yet are disproportionately likely to be, say, Republicans. So they will probably back for the Republican candidate um, and so forth. Now, the thing is this. Those cases absolutely exist but I'm not actually convinced that's what happened in 2016 because if you looked at Hillary Clinton's polling she was actually touching 50 several times um in the aggregate she was up against Trump 49-42 as late as mid-October and um you know she was touching 50 in March um and she was hitting 50 in a couple surveys here and there so I don't know that her hard ceiling was Maybe it was that polls are picking up something that just wasn't there. Or maybe the electorate was volatile. We have no way of knowing. But with that said, the polling evidence didn't really suggest that Hillary Clinton had a super hard ceiling in um, in 2020. And I think that's meaningfully very, very interesting because it cuts against a lot of what we thought. Or in 2016, 2016. it cuts against a lot of what we thought. Um, which we thought that like, oh, Hillary was unpopular, so everyone voted for Trump. I mean, that's probably true, but it wasn't actually measured in polls. And it's, it's interesting because it's a form of, when, when you look at it, you can always fit the data to the priors. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> when we looked at the actual polls themselves, I mean, you're right. There was very little evidence to suggest that Hillary Clinton was going to lose that race in mid-October. Mm-hmm. This time around... This time around, it's very interesting because you actually do see Trump stuck at, you know, 45, 44, 43, and there may actually be a ceiling for him. We have two years of electoral evidence, two cycles of evidence to go off this. 2016, he hit 46% of the vote. 2020, he didn't do much better. Um, And 2024, you look at the polls and he's, you know, in polls that aren't, Harris and Harvard, which I have feelings <laughs> of, which I won't make known here, but, um, you I, know, I, have, that aren't right.
3: I have similar feelings.
4: <laughs> yeah. When you look at like high quality posters, like you morning consult, Emerson, Quinnipiac, et cetera, He's always at that 45, 46 range. And I think that's the type of thing that to me signals a flag, like, Hey, okay, well, how are those other people going to break?
3: Yeah. I mean, if you want to get super geeky in 2016, he was at 45.9. Uh, in uh, 20, he's 46.8. Uh, and that's very similar to the 46.7. He's currently averaging uh, in the RCP polling average. I'm stealing this from uh, Chris Silliza, but it is kind of interesting. Hey, look, in a lesser of two evil uh, kind of election, the wild card starts to be other parties. Uh, there's starting to be some polling with RFK in the race. There's starting to be some five-way polling that would include Jill Stein and Cornell West. I think most startlingly, as you no doubt know, uh, No Labels is starting to openly court Nikki Haley, who claims she's not interested. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, all of those... I mean, the Nikki Haley thing with No Labels, I have no idea what happens at that point. You'd think she would... She would take votes away from Trump, but maybe the people who really are unhappy with Biden, who knows? But all of that makes this thing, I mean, even if it's just, you know, a five-way race with Stein and, and, and West in there, plus Kennedy, it's a much more complicated thing to talk about, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, so the thing with Stein and West and Kennedy that's, that's super, super interesting to look at is, depending on who does the polling, their effect is wildly different. It's, It's very, very interesting. Like when you you take a look to see, you know, if those guys draw who those guys draw support from, there's polls that come out that show Kennedy siphoning most of his vote from Biden. And then there's polls that come out from people that show him taking a lot from Trump. And what's interesting is, you have absolutely no way of testing it. And it's just it's frustrating to a degree, but it's also just hilarious. And I think it will depend on state. You know, we did some research on this a while back, and we actually found that depending on the state, third parties will take more from one party than another. There are votes in which libertarians take more of the vote from Democrats than they do from Republicans, which seems very counterintuitive. And where this is going is, I think, even if no labels fields a candidate, firstly, I don't know if Nikki Haley is really going to humiliate herself publicly by getting 1% in a national election. (laughs) The second thing is um, double haters aren't really going to back Nikki Haley or no labels or RFK or whoever in all likelihood. And the reason for this is because we see this every cycle. People have their own partisan inclinations that override their feeling for a candidate. And overwhelmingly, what happens is you may dislike your candidate but you know that a vote for a third party is essentially half a vote for the other party and that's why um a the impact of these things is very difficult to gauge and we won't get more clarity on it until later and it'll probably be a state-by-state thing and will depend greatly on the sample you pick but secondly um Whoever the no-labels candidate is or whoever, you know, these people, whoever runs as a third party, I don't even know if Kennedy's going to get ballot access in most of these right. states. Whoever does end up running, we're going to get, um they're going to get much, much lower than what they're currently pulling at. Almost all these undecided voters are going to end up going towards one of these two candidates. Maybe you end up with 2016 again, but that was, you know, Clinton and Trump still combined for almost 95% of the vote.
3: Absolutely. All right. We have to stop there. But this has been terrific. Lakshad Jain, a partner at the election analysis website, splitticket.org. You should check this out. It's a very interesting uh, project. We're going to take a little break. We will be right back.
5: Oh, he had no
1: choice. No, he never had no choice. When he gave his river a voice, he never really had no choice. That the pain came much too soon when he locked himself up inside his room well it hurt real bad support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare ECMO is a leading edge life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure doctor Jason Gluck director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital explains what it is
3: all right, we're talking about Lesser of Two Evils today. We're excited to do that with Julia Maskip a professor of political theory and political science at Rollins College in Florida. She wrote the book, The Duty to Vote. She also wrote, yes, you do have an obligation to vote for the Lesser of Two Evils. Here's why for The Washington Post. That was in 2016. Uh, she may have changed her mind since then. Who knows? I don't think so, though. I've been following her work. Uh, very excited to have you here. Welcome to our conversation.
0: Thank you so much. Excited to
3: be here. You know, um, it might be interesting just to begin with the fact that you are originally from Argentina, which has compulsory voting laws. Uh, yeah. uh, and um, one of the really interesting things that I learned about from you partly, uh, is that within those compulsory voting laws, there's the idea of a blank vote. If you see the election of a lesser of two evils and you can't wrap your mind around voting for one or the other of them, you can do something that's called a blank vote. And that gets counted, as I understand it, as a vote and can actually have an effect on the outcome, too.
0: Yeah, that, that's right. That's a very nice and, and useful feature that compulsory voting systems have and that provide to the voter. Uh, dissatisfied voters, angry voters, or citizens that may still want to express their views and let the government know why they're angry have that option. And that option is counted, which provides useful information to the government and society overall about what might need to be changed in order for these constituencies to regain confidence in the system. So it's something that that we in America and in other countries without compulsory voting uh, certainly, do not have, and that would uh, will probably improve uh, the, the the state of elections greatly. I think.
3: Although interestingly last year uh many voters in Argentina saw Millet versus Massa as a, a a lesser evil kind of situation maybe a decision they would make at the last minute as they walked into the polling booth they didn't like like either option there was press speculation i saw that 7 to 13% of the vote would be uh, the vote uh, vote for the blank vote uh, i think in the end it was 3.1 maybe cl- close to a million so that sort of means that it, it says to me anyway that in the last analysis, an awful lot of people in that election thought, yeah, I'm not really crazy about either one of these choices, but I should pick one.
0: Yeah, I think what happened in Argentina was not what a lot of people were surmising that that it would. Millet won with a large majority over the incumbent government. I think we have to understand the, the turbo economic situation in which the country is with 140% inflation. Uh, some people actually thought that voting for the lesser of two evils would be more productive and beneficial than actually casting a blank vote. And I think that's what a majority did. Um, um in the country, so we're
3: we're talking right now on Wednesday, the twenty eighth. Uh, yesterday, uh, Tuesday, in Michigan, there was uh, a primary. It's not the same quite the th- same thing as a blank vote, but one of the things that people had an option to do uh, was to vote uncommitted. Uh, it appears that about a hundred thousand people did that to express some displeasure with President Biden. Let's hear. This is from All Things Considered. Uh, this is a Michigan voter I'm talking to reporter Elena Moore. This is a one maestro.
1: I met 31-year-old Morgan Neewald coming out of her
4: polling place in Ferndale, which is a suburb of Detroit. I usually vote Democratic Party because Republicans don't have my interests in mind, Um, but I'm finding out that Democrats don't either.
1: You know, she voted uncommitted because protecting the human rights of others is her top priority, she said. And she told me she's done with Biden.
0: She will not be voting for him in November.
3: So what do you hear here, Julia?
0: Listen. It's it's understandable why many people may be angry at Biden and the current administration. And generally speaking, it's understandable why voters may want to demand more from government than what they get. So the idea that lesser evil voting is 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 immoral or is or or is not a good idea makes sense philosophically, right? Arguments for this notion are that. Well, it perpetuates injustice. It doesn't change the rules of the game. It perpetuates the two-party system that we have. It doesn't give us anything new, um, and 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 we don't have a duty to uh, compromise our most profound ideals about what society should look like just to prevent um, um, a bad candidate from winning, right? But to that, I would say that there are valid philosophical arguments for thinking that lesser evil voting is a duty. For a start, we don't have to think that voting is the only possible citizenship sort of tool that we have in order to change the system. It makes total sense to think that we can vote every four years or every two years for the lesser of two evils, and then devote our energies and time as much as we can to, Promoting structural changes that are more consonant with our beliefs about what a society, a just society, should look like. Um, And I think it's also important to note that voting for the lesser of two evils is a moral option, even though some of us might say or some people may think that it's not because it's still voting for evil. It's a moral option because it brings us closer to that model of society that we might prefer however, piecemeal wise. So if I vote for the person that I think is the least worst candidate, I might actually end up improving the chances of getting to the state of affairs that I wanna get at some point, as opposed to voting for the person or letting the person that will destroy that possibility completely letting that person win.
3: Yeah, I mean, th- there's sort of the shortcut version of this using your work is we start with the idea, with your idea, that voting is a duty, it is um, uh, a moral thing to vote, and it is a less moral thing to not vote. if you start there, and then if you can discern the lesser of two evils, if you can confidently discern discern that one of the, your choices is less evil than the other, in a way, the conversation's over, right? I mean, you you, you have to vote, and you know who to vote for.
0: Um right. I think uh, I would like to say that I think it, it's a little bit unfair, perhaps inaccurate to put Biden and Trump on, on this comparison. Right. However, however, discontent or however um, angry or mad we are at the current administration, the fact is that any candidate in the past, any Democratic candidate in the past, if she or he is beholden to corporate interests, or if she or he um, depends on big money donations to win, we could say from a sort of more radical structural justice perspective, they are a lesser evil. Uh, Obama would fit this description in the past too, and every other candidate. I think the perception for many may be that these are two evils, one is lesser than the other, but the fact is that in in my mind, the reality is that one is a big evil and the other is a, is a, is a traditional evil, if you will. <laughs> I, I don't know why we should single single out this election as a particularly salient sort of case of a lesser evil um, um, choice.
3: Yeah. I mean, at the beginning of that comment, you kind of summarized an argument that was made in 2000. I should point out that Ralph Nader uh, turned 90 yesterday. Happy birthday, Ralph. Uh, But that was his argument. He, He said both um you know, both parties are so beholden to big business, corporate interests. they tend to have look-alike positions. He started using the phrase "There's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties, possibly unaware of the fact that George Wallace had used it before him, not the kind of person Ralph would want him be caught quoting. Uh, right. <laughs> but but that I mean, so some of this is in the eye of the beholder. Ralph, Nader, from his position, looks at this and says, these, th- there isn't a big difference. Julia can say that one is a big evil and one's a normal evil. Um, but to me, there's so little difference that it's not an interesting choice.
0: And, and I understand. I think that's a fair assessment. I think the big picture here is that the system, the political institutional system that we have in the United States, which is kind of like an outlier compared to other democratic republics around the world, the system in itself, the structural Um, shape of the system, political system perpetuates, uh, supports, promotes this binary sort of choice that we have, the two-party system, right, Um, in in very concrete and easy to understand ways. First, the way in which we count votes, the way in which we conduct elections, right, the single uh, member plurality district system in which It's a winner-take-all system, right? The winner takes all the seats, and and the loser, even if the loser lost by one vote, takes nothing, right? In in other systems around the world, um, votes are counted through the proportional proportional methods, right? Where uh, each party gets a share of... uh, Seats are distributed according to the share of votes that each party gets in an election. That's not the case here in the United States. Uh, And and then separately, the way in which uh, new parties are created, the rules for the creation of new parties are quite strict and demanding. There's a lot of money involved that it's needed to get a new party running, and a lot of signatures that have to be collected. All these things together, the voting rules, that uh, exacerbate uh, the, the 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 perpetuate the, the two party system, and the fact that new parties find it very difficult to form explain to some extent to some important extent why uh, Americans cannot count on third parties with a with a real chance of winning an election. Right. So, uh,
3: by the way, uh, this whole question has been pondered by by. Very powerful thinkers, uh, including, of course, The Simpsons. Uh, Meister, this is B2 right here.
1: America, take a good look at your beloved candidates. They're nothing but hideous space reptiles. It's true. We are aliens. But what are you going to do about it? It's a two-party system. You have to vote for one of us.
0: You're right. This is a two-party system. Well, I believe I'll vote for a
4: third-party candidate.
1: Go ahead. Throw your vote away. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: and Julia, th- that whole dynamic uh, kind of obta- <laughs> it kind of obtains across our, our entire American system. And then right. you get to the presidency, and there's an even bigger problem, uh, which is that uh, if no candidate achieves a majority uh, of the votes uh, uh, in the electoral college, this could get thrown into Congress. Nobody wants to see that happen. I mean, um, the American system is built to accommodate two parties, uh, yeah. in, in that sense. But yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. It's completely built. Uh, for, for that purpose the fact that we don 't have a runoff or ballotage system like many other countries do right well if if if, if in in other countries if if the if the, if a candidate gets a majority but that majority is not over fifty percent then a second round has to happen right um and and so so there there are structural structural features that explain why third parties sort of have this advantage from the start, right? These the, this, this voting rules that I was talking about before, the, 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 the majority issue here is very important because it sets the wrong incentives for parties and for people. That is, if a party wants to get as many votes as possible, which that's what most of them want to do, <laughs> to, to win elections. But if they have to obtain a majority to do so, right, then they will tend to coalesce with other factions, with other groupings. Historically, that's that's the case, right? This is Duverger's law. The French sociologists who came up with this, with this idea, with this law, with this with this principle, which is very intuitive, right? In a, in a majority system with single uh, member districts. Uh, political groupings and factions will tend to coalesce, join with each other. And then on the sort of demand side, you have that citizens will think, well, what's the point of voting for these smaller parties if, even if I like them, they they don't stand a chance. So that compounds, if you will, the the binary, the duopoly sort of dynamic that we have today.
3: So, um, one of the things that you say in your book is that not only do we have a moral obligation to vote, but to vote well, uh, and voting well includes, and there's a phrase that you use that I love. It's something like uh, that the voter should have a, uh, achieve a, at least a minimum epistemic competence, meaning right. basically translated meaning a voter should at least know something, please know something, uh, <laughs> before you vote. But, and I think when it gets to the lesser of two evil votings, uh, it, it's a new there's it's not all the same thing. I mean, I think there are people who kind of have thrown up their hands and said, "I just don't like the system. I don't like these candidates. These are two old white guys uh, who have no interest. In, I'm just not even going to think about it. I can't imagine voting for either one of them." Um, and and. Then there are other people who really might drill down on the differences, really might educate themselves on the differences uh, and and maybe come to the same conclusion that I I just can't imagine voting for either one of them. I either have to find a third party candidate, which, as we've illustrated, might be squandering my vote or – and I'm I'm wondering sort of from a – point of view of moral political philosophy, is there a difference there uh, just between just sort of giving up and or educating yourself, becoming uh, a person of high epistemic competence, but still being un- unable to see a meaningful choice?
0: Right. Uh, so, of course, the question is complicated, right? Being a good citizen, I argue, is, is not just being willing to vote or to participate in myriad ways, but it's being able to do so judiciously and 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 of course we disagree as to what that means we all have different or may have different views about what justice is or different religious and philosophical views about a good life about what society should look like and that's fine we can we can all agree to disagree reasonably but 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 I argue in my work that we still have a duty to 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 make an effort to participate uh f- f- From a perspective of information uh, we, we do we we have to do the best we can in order to access the information that we need in order to participate and I think that's as important as 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 voting right I think it's a precondition for good citizenship for for participation that we make an effort to get informed and to understand what's at stake Of course, sometimes that's not easy and it's easier for some than it is for for others right um and we we know this uh, barriers to to the right to vote you know um exist left and right uh implemented with ill intentions by 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 republicans mostly all the time Uh, we know that Poverty may make it more difficult to get informed and to vote or to participate. And, of course, we have structural obstacles to this sort of equal participation uh, principle. Uh, If voting happened on a holiday or on a Sunday, as it it does everywhere else on Earth, I believe, (laughs) then perhaps that would be easier for some so, 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 yeah, citizenship is is not just participation. It's also an attempt to participate with information and knowledge. All right. We have
3: to stop there. But this is fascinating. Julia Maskivka is professor of political theory and political science at Rollins College in Florida. She wrote the book, The Duty to Vote. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about quantifying evil and depravity. <laughs>
0: All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show.
3: And special thanks to Jane Harris, our listener down in Middletown—I mean, one of our listeners down in Middletown, but she's one of our favorite listeners uh, in Middletown. And in general, she sent us a terrific email about this topic. I didn't have time to read it, but it was really good, and it did play into our thoughts a, a lot about this topic. Uh, the reason I didn't get to read it is Penelope's fault. Penelope is the bad cat of our producer, McCusker the Wonder Kid, who produced this particular episode. And our technical producer today is the maestro, Dylan Reyes. Joining us now is Dr. Michael Wellner, a forensic psychiatrist and and chairman of the forensic panel, uh, who has undertaken a very, very interesting project that really does involve assigning quantitative values to different kinds of evil and depravity. Uh, I took the uh, survey on this today. It was an upsetting experience, but uh, let's bring aboard Dr. Michael Wellner. Welcome to our conversation. Oh, you might be muted. Uh, I'll give you a chance to unmute and say hello. Um, and while I'm doing that, I'll just say that this, uh, uh, this survey involves uh, a whole bunch of questions in which you assign a value to the depravity of various kinds of criminal behaviors uh, that are either violent or indifferent uh, to suffering and stuff like that. So Dr. Dr. Michael Wellner, That's right. there
5: you go. Here, That's go. Right. Good, good good, afternoon. And you're, and, and the, the premise is that your vote matters. You're literally <laughs> the, 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 but it's, but it's a, uh, it's, in, it's true, because uh, the data from each individual participant at www.depravitystandard.org, that's integrated um, into uh, research uh, that, that counts everyone the same, no matter who they are, no matter where they originate from, no matter their background. The demographic information is also helpful in order for us to understand trends and, and how uh, people uh, feel the way they feel. But at the same time, everyone is weighed equally. And that is the beauty uh, of, of a vote in, in which one vote equals one vote, no matter who it, who it originates from.
3: Right. And so this is not a purely abstract or academic exercise. This is essentially something that judges and juries have to do all the time. They have to assign weight to to various kinds of evil or depraved acts uh, in terms of meeting out justice and sentences. Uh, I assume that's a lot of what's behind all this.
5: Absolutely. Look, I, I'm a pra- primarily a practicing forensic psychiatrist, and I work on some of the most sensitive uh, cases in the United States, many of, of with whom you you may be familiar with and have been working for 30 years. Andrew Yates, Elizabeth Smart, uh, al-Qaeda terrorists. Um, And what I've noticed is that when it comes to cases that involve the death penalty, which is the ultimate sentence, the uh, juries that are put in a position to weigh the potential sentences have a very difficult task of assessing whether someone's crime is heinous, atrocious, and cruel, or depraved, depending on the, the, the specific law for that state or the, the federal statute, and that may make the difference between their deciding whether a, a person is sentenced to life or sentenced to death, and and the the challenge of the ambiguity of what is evil in the legal system is real, uh, and and yet at the same time, as a long time practicing forensic scientist and and one uh, quite familiar with colleagues and other specialties if, if we we found in looking at each other uh, and just just talking as professionals do, if you were to ask a colleague what's the most evil crime you ever worked on uh, if, for my professional colleagues will always come up with a with a very small number and they'll be able to explain why. and that tells you essentially that that evil can be quantified if if you take the trouble and you did and and you quite properly said it's an upsetting experience. It is an upsetting experience. Uh, It's it's an upsetting experience to to have to look at it in a granular way. But if you study it in a granular way, what you are able to do is to discern evil, the importance of which is that uh, people don't become tone deaf. And when they have to make difficult decisions based on assessing evil, they don't use their prejudices they use the practicalities of what's been defined by careful, systematic study, including including the the input of the general public because of the the, the inherent subjectivity that one can't avoid.
3: So it it these uh, the questions they kind of fall into different categories, and it does seem based on your work and uh, what kind of what comes out when when this is studied that there are categories. Uh, of um, heinousness or depravity or evil uh, that seem to exceed other categories and most of the categories that that exceed uh, in terms of their evilness have to do with how the victim is treated is there some kind of extra harm inflicted on the on the victim does that seem fair
5: well crime is transactional mm-hmm. and um, and and so uh, someone may want to kill someone else and that's what uh, for inherently a, a, a a uh, an arrest and a charge of murder is But what happens when one goes beyond the transaction of what is necessary to end one's life and you know let's just you know make it a little bit easier for purposes of discussion let's just say an assault you know an assault is an assault beating is a beating Well, what happens when there are additional elements of one's intent one's actions the attitude that one has about what they've done or, or, or the, the victim choice that go beyond just the idea of, of one person hits, one person beats another. Uh, and, and that's when a crime is no longer a crime. It's just a question of how outlandish, how outrageous, how beyond uh, the, the, uh, the, the pale is that crime relative to others like it. And that's where the concept of depravity comes into crime. But what you you also have to know is that there are expressions of evil that go well beyond crime. Not everything uh, that is evil is is uh, is something that results in in arrest. Uh, and, and but the idea of what is it that distinguishes something that goes way beyond what is transactional, what's needed to do, uh, what, what's needed in order to carry out even an, an, an illegal behavior.
3: Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, to your point, I mean, this whole thing was just discussed a little bit in the preceding segment when Julia said, well, it's not really entirely fair to say that these are kind of equivalent evils, at least in her opinion. Uh, uh, Donald Trump represents a a big evil trying to overturn the results of an election uh, and and helping to incite a riot. Biden is kind of more of a traditionally unsatisfying candidate whose policies may bother certain people or maybe his refusal to get out of the way and let somebody younger run. Who knows? But so we do it all the time. We do it kind of heuristically uh, all the time. Yeah, that thing's worse than th- than that thing. I mean, it, as you say, it's not every. It's not always crime. It's everyday evil.
5: But but I don't think th- I, I have to tell you this. Um I don't think it's applicable to the election decision. Mm-hmm. Let me explain. Sure. I, I I you know I'm I'm not a political scientist, so I I don't allow myself the indulgence of, of really sitting with political theory. But I, I did to your previous guests. And, and here's what I take issue with. I think that, that uh, I, I certainly agree with the idea of universal voting, whether it's mandatory or not. I think it's wonderful. And I think people who've come here, in my experience as a mental health professional and, and listening to people for a living, people who come here from places that they, they never had the opportunity to vote, they appreciate that opportunity and they don't take it for granted. But um, I approach voting, and I would absolutely recommend your listeners, they may agree with me or they not, you, you, you approach your vote of what are you voting for? What is it that you like? And if there are two people to choose from, to, to stay away from the noise that tells you that you're not supposed to like these people or that they're evil or that they're awful or why, and just say, what is it that you expect to happen um, to your county, to your state, to your city? Um, to your country, depending on the office, if this person uh, gets your vote and wins? What is your expectation? And you may be right and you may be wrong. And based on the results, well, you'll keep that in mind next time. You'll either vote for them again or you'll vote for a certain policy again. Uh, sometimes we vote for, we, we don't even vote for individuals. We vote for certain policies thinking, boy, that that's a great idea. And then when you see the policy carrying out, you say, well, that's not something that I support any longer. And so I'm not going to to support it. But we all have our individual priorities. And and some folks have already alluded to them uh, here. Your first guest was talking about how abortion is a very big issue uh, for for the constituency that that he, he you know that he cited to. Other people, and you're talking about Michigan, um they may take a keen interest in, in the war uh in the Middle East. And and so and yet other people will will take uh, an interest in less publicized issues, but they're very passionate about them. And they'll say, I will vote for this person because this person will enact a policy that is in line with my priorities. And if, and if I see both of them the same, well, I'll look for another issue. And, and that is the beauty of individuality, that each person is entitled to their own priorities instead of having others telling them what is important to prioritize. Look, if one person wants to prioritize their family's standard of living, uh, whatever tax rate they have, that's their prerogative. If another one wants to prioritize uh, the the educational system, again, that's their prior. That is freedom. That's the essence of freedom. So I think that if people um, were choosing issues of what they're voting for, that it would be more motivating for participating. I know that in terms of my own election decisions, I've always uh, voted for uh, what am I voting for? And and that's why I always vote and why I always enjoy it.
3: And we're so, going to have to stop, my, my Dr. Michael Wilner. We're going to have to stop there. Stop
5: suffering so much.
3: Stop <laughs> suffering.
5: That's <laughs>
3: that's my, my, Dr. Michael, Michael Wilner is a, 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 a forensic psychiatrist, psychiatrist, psychiatrist and chairman of the, the Forensic Panel. Thank you very much. It
5: takes a whole lot of medicine For me to pretend that I'm somebody